0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner. Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, HER2 Positive Metastatic Breast Cancer New Therapies. And today's program is occurring exactly during Metastatic Breast Cancer Awareness Day, so um, that we I have to say that is amazing timing for all of us and all of you. Um, that there is recognition now that, um, that metastatic breast cancer exists and is, is treated and is successful, and we want you to all know that we're doing this program in behalf of all of you. That's really important. <clears throat> Today's program is supported by Seagren, an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, Inc., and funding from Macrogenics. I really want to thank them for their support to this program today. Now, I'd like to um, also acknowledge that we have uh, quite a few of you on the call today. We have over 220 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities, and we also have a number of international participants on this program today from Canada, India, Kenya, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. And we're really delighted to have so many of you on this call today and from all different parts of the world as well. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Generosa Grana. Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, the Cooper Health System, Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Brooklyn University. Dr. Grana will be addressing an update on the treatment of HER2-positive breast, metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, biomarker, genomic, and diagnostic testing grade and hormone receptors, and standard treatment options, including targeted treat therapies. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grana.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. And as uh, was said earlier, I think it's amazing that today is Metastatic uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Day because it is something that needs that uh, widespread awareness in terms of its impact. I'm going to begin by talking briefly about what is HER2-NU positive uh, breast cancer and what is HER2-NU positive metastatic breast cancer. HER2-NU positive breast cancer is a variant of breast cancer in which the cells express an overabundance of a protein called her 2 or human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 on their surface. These cancers have a more aggressive behavior than other cancers, but are exquisitely responsive to drugs that target this particular pathway. They can be uh, defined by the testing process. Uh, You can test by immunohistochemical staining, IHC, by FISH. Um, and uh, sometimes it's not so simple, and at times it can be uh, somewhat ambiguous. So typically we think of uh, IHC3-plus as positive, FISH-positive is itself positive, but sometimes there's some ambiguity, and it is hard work for the oncologist and the pathologist to come to a final definition. In addition to the HER2-new protein, HER2-NU positive cancers may or may not be estrogen receptor positive. So the final determination of treatment, which will guide treatment, is both the HER2-NU receptor status and the hormone receptor status. And it's really uh, that that helps us determine whether a cancer is hormone responsive and whether hormonal agents can be added uh, to the list of HER2-NU targeted drugs that we're going to talk about. Metastatic HER2 new positive breast cancer is disease that has spread beyond the breast and the local lymphatics. It's spread to bone, lymph nodes, lung, liver, or brain. The majority of women in the United States have a prior breast cancer diagnosis uh, and then go on to develop metastatic disease. Therefore, they already have an established cancer team that's guiding their management. Some 10 to 15% of patients present with metastatic disease as their first diagnosis. In other countries, that percentage is significantly higher. And these women need to pull together a treatment team, so their course is a little bit more challenging. How is metastatic disease diagnosed? With signs and symptoms of disease, uh, or, and, and it can be signs and symptoms of disease in the breast or in large nodes, or symptoms of disease outside of the breast, such as shortness of breath, abdominal pain, bone pain, headache, or lab abnormalities, a high calcium or a high alkaline phosphatase, or imaging abnormalities. Oftentimes, a scan that is done for something else for another reason shows an abnormality that, when pursued, leads to a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer. The appropriate workup entails three things. It entails making a diagnosis so that you know you're dealing with metastatic disease. It entails assessing extent of disease because that gives us both an idea of treatment needs and of prognosis. And finally, a determination of a treatment plan. So those three things are equally important. First, a biopsy. Uh, Ideally, you biopsy a distant site to prove that it is breast cancer and not another malignancy or even a benign condition. You want to make sure that you're dealing with metastatic breast cancer. Secondly, you biopsy to repeat the estrogen, progesterone, and her 2 status as they can change in the process of developing metastasis. It's rare, but a cancer that was ER positive can become negative, Uh, and a cancer that was HER2 new positive can become negative. So it is important to retest so you can define your treatment plan. And finally, it's important to biopsy to get tissue for more sophisticated testing that can aid in treatment planning or preparing you for clinical trials. That is the whole whole area of genomic profiling, next-generation sequencing, or precision medicine. I'm not going to touch on that at all because Dr. Liu is going to speak about that, but again, it's one of the things that's new and evolving that can help guide treatment. Once a diagnosis is confirmed and we know that we're dealing with metastatic breast cancer, we know the estrogen receptor status, we know the her 2 new status, what next? Staging studies are done to assess the extent of disease, CAT scan and bone scan, or PET scan in some situations, MRI of the brain if symptomatic, labs to assess organ function, tumor markers. These are proteins that are shed by the tumor into the bloodstream. If they're elevated, they can be followed to assess response to therapy. If they're not elevated, we don't follow them any further. Now, before we go on to treatment, the impact of COVID-19. It really was more of an impact on early stage disease. There were restrictions on elective surgeries, leading to more pre op chemotherapy in earlier cancers. Uh, Clinical trials at many institutions were put on hold, which really did impact patients with metastatic disease looking for novel drugs that were in clinical trials. It caused delayed diagnosis due to closures of mammography facilities and restrictions on access to primary care. So there were a lot of impacts from COVID-19 on metastatic breast cancer. Fortunately, most of this has been reversed. Most centers are fully back in operation. Services are safe. There's a full complement of service now at all centers. And teams are working harder than ever to deal with uh, patients' feelings of isolation and a sense of vulnerability brought about by COVID-19. We still have limited visitation uh, because of the ongoing pandemic. So oftentimes patients have to come in unaccompanied and we get their family members on the phone and we spend a lot of time calling and, and discussing treatment plans to keep everyone engaged in the management of the patient. Now, let's talk about treatment of metastatic her 2 positive disease. The choice depends on several factors. depends on what drugs the patient received previously, how long ago that therapy was given, whether there are residual side effects such as neuropathy or cardiac dysfunction from the drugs previously received. It is really critical um, in the setting of liver or lung disease called visceral disease that treatment be started very quickly, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But it is also very important to determine the estrogen status of the cancer because if a patient does not have visceral disease, lung liver disease, they have slow growing disease that's estrogen positive, we may be able to go the route of hormonal therapy combined with HER2 new targeted therapy. It's also critical that we sit down and talk to the patient about their wishes and have a real discussion about goals. Uh, because some people will have uh, specific ideas about hair loss, tolerability or not. They may have specific interests in oral drugs versus intravenous. So it's not just understanding the severity of the disease in terms of lung, liver, and other, and understanding the ER status uh, in in planning, but also patients' wishes and, and desires. There's an amazing array of drugs that are currently available with excellent activity in metastatic disease. The first drug to come on the market was Herceptin or Trastuzumab. Uh, it is now widely used in metastatic disease, but in early-stage disease. Uh, pertuzumab or Perjeta, Cadzilla or Aldotrastuzumab and Tansine, which is otherwise known as a chemoconjugate. There's a drug called Tucatinib, which is a small molecule inhibitor of her 2 It's an oral compound. And HER2, uh, another antibody drug conjugate, several other oral drugs, neratinib and tykerb, which are small molecules, a new, better uh, Herceptin called margituximab. Uh, and again, all of these play a role and are used at various points in the course of the disease. There are also a variety of chemotherapeutic agents that can be combined with these HER2-new targeted drugs. Navalbean is a favorite one, Taxol or Taxotere or Abraxane. Uh, Zalota or capecitabine and others. And the idea is to look at established regimens that have been, uh, that have published data, uh, but the reality is that we have a lot of options. There are also a variety of hormonal agents to combine with the her 2 targeted agents if a patient is estrogen receptor positive and has lymph node disease or bone disease or non-life-threatening disease. And those patients can be on hormonal therapy with a targeted agent and delay the onset of chemotherapy for quite some time. There are some patients that are fortunate to go into remission uh, with these approaches. And they're maintained on drug therapy indefinitely. When can we stop? There are no clear-cut answers. Many questions still remain. The novel regimen, novel combinations uh, with immunotherapy that we'll hear more about. How we combine some of these agents with some of the newer drugs that we use in estrogen receptor-positive disease, such as uh, Verzenio and Ibrance. Uh, so, again, I think my message that I will end on is that we have an amazing collection of drugs for this entity with tremendous activity, very good tolerability, and moving forward, it's really the optimal combination of those uh, those drugs that we will talk about. And I'll stop there.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Grant. What a wonderful way to set the context for today's program and to really talk about all of the really... Um, well, all the different medications and the progress has been made in the treatment of her to um, uh, metastatic breast cancer. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Minetta Liu. And Dr. Liu is Professor and Research Chair, Division of Medical Oncology Department of Oncology, Consultant Division of Anatomic Pathology, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Medical Director, Office of Specialty Collaboration and Contracts, Co-Leader of Genomics in Action, Strategic Priority, and Center for Individualized Medicine, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Liu will be addressing how biomarker testing informs treatment decisions and updates on investigational new drugs in clinical trials. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Liu.
3: Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, It's always a pleasure to be here. Um, Dr. Grant is a hard act to follow, but I'm going to do my best. And just a big shout-out and thank you to everyone for attending this. It's amazing to have international representation on a teleconference like this, and I hope everyone is doing well. Um, So I'm tasked with talking about biomarker testing um, and investigational new drugs, Um, and uh, Dr. Grana just set the stage again very nicely. Um, HER2 uh, is a protein. It's, It's the HER2 pathway, so we think about proteins, but more importantly, we think about signaling in cancer cells. Um, because there are signals that are turning things off, on and off in a cancer cell, and what we're trying to do with targeted therapies like HER2 directed therapy is turn those signals in the other direction to basically kill those cancer cells. Um, HER2 is a family uh, in a family of several proteins, and I call it promiscuous because it likes to work with partners. So HER2 can bind with itself and cause what's called a dimer, or two HER2 proteins, or it can go with HER1, HER3, HER4. Um, And the different drugs that we have available um, to treat HER2-positive breast cancer can interact with those proteins in different ways. Um, The crux of the matter is HER2-positivity, though, and HER2-positivity can be defined in different ways. It's not necessarily black and white. There is a lot of gray. I think of it as a continuum. Um, of HER2 expression, whether it's the protein itself, which is sort of the business end, what's acting, or the gene, which is the DNA that's coding for the protein. So we can look at HER2, both protein expression, and that's immunohistochemistry, that's the scoring of 0, 1 plus, 2 plus, 3 plus that we hear about, or FISH testing, which is fluorescence in situ hybridization, which is essentially for looking for how many copies of the HER2 gene are present in the cancer cell. We would expect there to be two copies of the gene in normal state, and if there are too many copies, that's the overexpression. Um, We typically will look for the protein first. If it looks like it's really in the gray zone, then we do specialized testing looking for the genes. Some places will do both, some do one or the other, but typically it's FISH that trumps everything, and again, there has been a change over the course of time and truly what's called FISH-amplified um, or HER2-amplified breast cancer. So that's the general testing that we do um, for defining whether a breast cancer is HER2-positive or negative, and those HER2-positive breast cancers then are those that would qualify for her 2 directed therapy. Uh, In this era now of what we're calling clinical genomic profiling or next-generation sequencing, we have the ability to also look for mutations in the HER2 gene. Mutations are like errors or misspellings in the typewriter ribbon. um, And those can affect the way the proteins interact with each other and then affect the way the signaling pathway is on or off, if you will. Um, this is There's usually panel testing, there are multiple companies and many academic centers will have their own internal panels that are looking at multiple genes um, across many different types of cancer, but we can specifically look at mutations or errors in HER2. Um, those mutations, some of them, can also define potential benefit from HER2-directed therapy. And although it's not necessarily a standard of care now to look for these mutations, oftentimes in the setting of metastatic breast cancer, we are looking for our new opportunities for patients in terms of broadening treatment options And so a breast cancer that is traditionally defined as HER2-negative by immunohistochemistry looking at protein or FISH looking at gene amplification, if we find these mutations, even in a traditionally HER2-negative breast cancer, those patients might be eligible for HER2-directed therapy and, in fact, might benefit. Um, So there might be this other class, if you will. Um, The other class of patients that might benefit from HER2-directed therapies are those patients that don't have traditionally HER2-positive, um, but what have this new group that's being called HER2-low breast cancers, meaning that there's some protein overexpression, but not enough to call it truly, quote-unquote, HER2-positive, uh, and there are some drugs um, that may ultimately get approvals for this type of HER2-low breast cancer. Uh, more to be seen. Um, there are there's data that are being evaluated right now to see um, if these agents might get approval, hopefully sometime next year, but, but we'll see. Um, the other thing that I want to bring up, particularly because we're talking about metastatic disease, is monitoring. So it's not just about identifying a therapy. Uh, And as you're going to hear throughout this session, there are uh, many therapies that are in existence now with standards of care and drugs that are um, up and coming. Uh, It's about making sure that the patient's on the right therapy. So you've made a decision to start something. Is there an ability for us to monitor over the course of time whether that treatment is working or not? Uh, And it's not necessarily specific to HER2 positive breast cancer, uh, but there are blood tests that are in development for trying to understand if the drug choice is the right one in terms of uh, is the cancer shrinking. We can see that in imaging studies, but sometimes the imaging studies can be a little deceiving. Um, And we would also not want to have to wait for imaging studies to be done 12 weeks from now or however many, 24 weeks from now. It would be nicer to know earlier if the drug choice was right or not. So no testing that right now is done as a standard of care, but certainly a lot of blood tests that are in development uh, to, to help us make that decision. Uh, And then that speaks to if we have the ability to better monitor, the ability to escalate or de-escalate therapy. And as was alluded to before, uh, HER2-positive breast cancer has um, a, a uniqueness to it in that because the cancers can be so driven by HER2, with the administration of HER2-directed therapy, with several patients who might have amazing responses, or radiographically, by imaging, meaning CT scans or PET scans, what we saw before is cancer we can't see anymore. And the reflex has been to continue the therapy, at least continuing the HER2-directed portion. Maybe we can get rid of the chemotherapy for a while um, and just uh, continue what we would consider maintenance therapy. For some patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, they've done well with no evidence of disease on scans for years, but we continue to give therapy because we're worried. Imagine a world if we had some test to say, you know what, you're actually in the clear. We could stop therapy or at least hold it for a while, right? Um, Or we can pull back a little bit and not have to give everything that we've been giving at um, at this moment because it's all about toxicities and trying to minimize them as best as possible. In the same respect, if we think a drug is working but it's really not working, maybe we need to be escalating or giving more for a period of time. So it's about getting smarter and more precise about how we're treating um, every individual patient. Um, With respect to investigational new drugs and clinical trials, um, I could list several of them, um, but I think that that's sort of beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about, uh, what we're meant to talk about today. Uh, what I want everyone to understand is that there are new drugs in development. There's also better understanding about the biology of HER2-positive breast cancer and the interplay of other signaling pathways with HER2. So it's not just about developing new drugs targeting HER2, it's about understanding other drugs that we need to partner with HER2-directed therapies to make things work better and be more effective. I think my time is ending up, so I'm going to stop here um, and turn it over back to Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lou. Um, that was really excellent, um, and I just really want to thank you for this really excellent presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A, and so well, thank you very, very, um, lots of great information for our participants. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Hervitz. And Dr. Hervitz is Professor of Medicine, Director of Breast Cancer Clinical Trials Program, Division of Hematology and Oncology, David Geffen School of Medicine, UCLA, Medical Director, Clinical Research Unit, Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Hervitz will be addressing new and emerging t- targeted treatments and how research contributes to your treatment options. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hervitz.
4: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. It's my first time speaking for this group, so thank you um, so much for having me um, in this important um, teleconference. So, you know, I started as a breast medical oncologist back in 2006, so it's been just over 15 years. And as I ponder what has happened in the past 15 years, Solely respected uh, respected to um, HER2 positive disease. It's it's really quite f- phenomenal. When I came out of fellowship, we had one HER2 targeted therapy we could use for HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer, which comprises about 20% of all breast cancer. or So initially, it was thought that that HER2 positive subset was 25 to 30%. It's probably closer to 15 to 20%. And this subtype, I was always taught in fellowship and residency, was associated with one of the worst long-term prognoses for patients um, who are diagnosed with it. And then we had the development of trastuzumab or Herceptin, which showed real phenomenal benefits when added to chemotherapy in any stage of disease. But fast forward from 2006 all the way to here, we now have eight FDA-approved HER2 targeted therapies available for metastatic breast cancer. In fact, some of these, I think four, have been approved just in the last year and a half or so. So the pace of science has Uh, been really phenomenal, um, in large part due to patients who are willing to be part of clinical trials evaluating these new therapies. And the end result is that patients diagnosed with HER2-positive metastatic disease now appear to have a prognosis that is as good or better than patients diagnosed with HER2 negative disease. So these therapies have altered the natural history or the poor prognosis associated with this subtype of disease. This is a real success story in the cancer world. In the last few years, we've had the FDA approval, as I said, of four or five agents for HER2-targeted therapy, and we had one new agent presented at ESMO last week, SYD-985, that may be approved in the coming year or so. The agents that are newly approved are Tucatinib, as, um, as uh, um, was mentioned earlier by Dr. Grena, uh, and Dr. Liu. This is a small molecule or, oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor that selectively targets HER2. Usually, when we take pills to target cancer, the pill formulation is unable to just uniquely, specifically target the target we're going after, but it also hits other targets. And in hitting other targets, like HER1, or EGFR, toxicity can become a problem. Tucatinib is a new agent that is able to selectively target HER2, and the other unique feature is that it is able to penetrate the blood-brain barrier, One of the challenges of HER2-positive breast cancer is a higher risk of brain metastases, and bulky molecules like antibodies have difficulty passing through that blood-brain barrier, the network of capillaries that protect the brain from toxins, um, and so agents don't pass through there. Well, tucatinib can. And there was a clinical trial that evaluated patients receiving tucatinib when added to oral chemotherapy, capecitabine or Zolota, um, and Herceptin. And the patients who received tucatinib had a longer survival, a better control of their disease, and nearly half of them had brain metastases shrink in the half of patients who had brain mets on the on the study. So this is a real um, sort of monumental finding in, in breast cancer and led to the FDA approval of this therapy. We also uh, mentioned earlier um, regarding NHER2 or TDXD. Every drug has several names. Um, it, it's not meant to confuse everyone, but I think it does confuse everyone, doctors and patients alike. So it used to be known as DS8201, Deruxtecan. tcan TDXD or and HER2, and what this is is a fancy form of Herceptin, which is linked very um, uh, closely to chemotherapy. The chemotherapy is loaded on the molecule, so the molecule is sort of a Trojan horse that delivers the chemotherapy to the HER2 overexpressing breast cancer cell. This drug showed really uh, marked activity in patients who had received. Uh, many, many prior lines of therapy for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. And so this uh, data from a single-arm trial led to the accelerated approval of this agent in 2019, But as you may know, we like to see randomized controlled trials where we compare a new agent to the standard regimen before we grant full FDA approval and adopt a therapy widely. And just a few weeks ago at the European Society of Medical Oncology, this drug was compared to the standard TDM1, or trastuzumab and tansine, also known as cabsila, and was shown to significantly improve the length of time a woman could live without her disease progressing, and significantly improve the odds that the disease would shrink or um, completely disappear on scan. So um, these data are are the first randomized data to support this agent in the the metastatic setting, and now uh, this drug replaces our standard second-line therapy of TDM1. I don't have time today, of course, to go through the other agents, including margituximab and neratinib, lipatinib, and TDM1 in great detail, Suffice it to say, and I'll end on this, a patient diagnosed today with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer has myriad options available to treat and control the disease. I am treating patients with metastatic disease who have been living with metastases for as long as I've been practicing as a clinician, 15 years, um, and I have some patients who I adopted as patients with metastatic HER2-positive disease um, who uh, were somebody else's patients when I became an oncologist, and they have been living all of this time with this disease. um, At ESMO last year, there was a presentation of registry data from cancer centers at France that showed that the median overall survival associated with HER2-positive breast cancer is substantially improved when you compare a person diagnosed in 2008 with the disease to somebody diagnosed in 2015. And that is owing to these important therapies that have been developed and are available for patients to access now. My hope is that we'll see uh, this good survival continue into the future with the development and um, um, evaluation of a number of other agents that target this pathway um, in this disease setting. Thank you so much for your attention.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hervis. That was really a wonderful presentation and so informative and also really um, very inspirational for everybody on the call today to hear um, of of the the progress that's been made over these many years and continues. Um, So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Jennifer Metro. And Dr. Metro is Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology-Oncology, University of California, San Diego Health. Um, And Dr. Metro will be addressing what's new in the prevention and management of treatment side effects, discomfort, and long-term effects, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes, and also key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life, Uh, concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Metro, um, uh, to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Metro, um, and so I turn this program over to to Dr. Metro.
4: Thank you, Dr. Messner, and it's really a privilege to participate in this global call on Metastatic Breast Cancer Awareness Day during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and with such an all-star cast of breast oncologists um, speaking today. Um, So I'll start with discussing uh, sort of how how we can help manage side effects, long-term effects of um, different cancer treatments. When it comes to side effects, it's best always to be prepared. We would rather you be be ready to deal with side effects that never happen than to be in a situation where you're feeling a side effect and don't have medications or other supportive things on hand to help with that So for example, you should have medications to treat the most common cancer treatment-related side effects, such as nausea, diarrhea, constipation. Uh, Have those on hand, even if you don't end up needing them. Uh, Be sure to keep your care team up to date on how you're tolerating your treatment and what side effects or discomforts you may be having. If a particular side effect is not under control, your care team very likely will have other suggestions or recommendations to help you feel better. HER2-targeted therapies have some unique side effects themselves, um, some of which have been mentioned, uh, but specifically um, some examples of this include weakening of the heart muscle or diarrhea, and these effects really should be proactively managed. So for uh, patients who are on HER2-targeted therapy, including trastuzumab, we do periodic echocardiogram or MUGA testing to monitor cardiac function we monitor laboratory tests, blood tests uh, of electrolytes that can, uh, that can become abnormal if somebody is experiencing diarrhea, um, and so we, we we're able to replete those and, and make sure that um, electrolytes and, and cardiac function and, and kidney function are all optimized. Some of the new targeted therapies in HER2-positive breast cancer, which have been mentioned, come with new challenges in managing side effects. Uh, some of these new medicines have important side effects that we are, we are aware of, and, and so we need to um, prevent them, but also to detect them early in, in order to minimize long-term complications. Uh, so a couple of examples that I'll go over. The first is um, one of the uh, medications called niratinib, which is um, one of the oral pills, a small molecule, um, HER2-targeted medication. That's approved in combination with capecitabine for metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. A very common side effect of neuratinib is diarrhea, which in some cases can, can really be severe. Um, but we're aware of this possibility, and so we can act early to prevent it. So most patients who are started on neuratinib will be recommended to take anti-diarrhea medications, such as Imodium, uh, before they have uh, onset of symptoms or at the first um, at the first sign of a symptom so that we can get on top of it before it starts rather than find ourselves in a position where we're playing catch-up or symptoms are already so bad that they're start, starting to interfere with daily life. Samtrustuzumab-durextican or in HER2, um, which was mentioned previously, has a very rare side effect called interstitial lung disease, sort of an in- inflammatory condition of the lungs that can cause shortness of breath and cough and, um, and can be pretty serious if it, if it goes undetected or untreated. Uh, so we as physicians will make sure that um, patients who we're recommending this medication for are not significantly high risk for this complication before we start it. Uh, and we, we make sure that our patients are aware of these risks so that any respiratory symptoms such as a new or worsening cough or shortness of breath can be promptly evaluated, uh, and then I want to talk for a, a few minutes about preparing for telehealth appointments. Uh, so, these have been really one of the, I think, advantages of the COVID-19 pandemic is the introduction of telemedicine appointments into uh, into uh, routine healthcare. Uh, And and really, I hope this is one of the things that we continue forward even once this pandemic is over because it's really provided advantages for us as physicians and also for patients who maybe have to travel far for appointments or don't necessarily need to be seen in person but can still then have uh, a, a productive meeting or conversation with their providers. First and foremost, when you're when you're preparing for a telehealth appointment is to make sure that you have a good connection on a reliable device, whether that's a laptop, an iPad, or a cell phone. If it's your first time using that platform or meeting with a physician through that um, telemedicine or online program, make sure you log on well in advance of when the video uh, when the visit starts so that if you have difficulties connecting that there'll be time to troubleshoot them without interfering uh, or Um, going into your appointment time. Um, Always make sure that you have the phone number of either a tech support or administrative assistant of the provider who you're scheduled to meet so that if you are having difficulty connecting, you can notify the team and get some help. Um, It's always helpful to write down questions that you have and what concerns you want to address and make sure you refer to those notes as often as you need to in order to make sure your questions are answered during the course of the visit. If possible, have a family member or friend with you, um, either at home or wherever it is that you're, that you're sitting um, w- during the visit. Having a second set of eyes and ears can be really helpful in making sure that you remember the things that are discussed during the visit. Um, if it's a video visit, and you you and your family member or friend can both be on the screen, but one thing I, Try to remind people is try not to compromise the camera's view of, your, of yourself in order to show others in the room. Um, the most important person that we want to see during the visit is, is the patient, because uh, we can get some really helpful information just by looking at you on camera. Uh, you know, Are you fe- speaking full sentences without having to stop to catch your breath? Do you look pale? Are you moving your arms and your face um, you know, normally? Uh, so we can get some really helpful information just by looking at you without you having, without you being, sitting right in front of us in person, but we can only do that if we can see your full, your full um, self on the camera. At the end of the visit, make sure that you know what the next steps are. So if tests are being ordered, how are they gonna be scheduled? Do you have the phone numbers for the scheduling office to schedule them yourself? Or will somebody be calling you from the office to make sure that those appointments get scheduled? Um, or, uh, and for follow-up appointments as well. So make sure that you know what might be done for you and what you will be responsible for doing at the end of the visit uh, in order to make sure that your treatment progresses uh, on time. And then questions to ask about quality of life concerns. So this can be a really difficult subject to address with, with your doctor, really anybody Um, even even family members. But it's so important to have these conversations and ideally these discussions will happen while you are feeling healthy and well. So first you wanna make sure that your doctor and team has a good understanding of your current quality of life, how you're feeling now and whether you're hoping to improve your quality of life or do you feel well and you're satisfied with how you're feeling now and you're more concerned about how you might feel in the future you want to make sure that your team and family knows what's important to you in terms of quality of life. Um, People will have different values and and sort of have different goals. So some people may want to just be able to enjoy meals with family. Other people may want to travel to distant places. Um, Other people are happy, just as happy to be at home. And we also want to know how much would you want to go through to either improve your quality of life or to get more time? so for example, is eating something of value or if for some reason you're unable to eat, would you want something like a feeding tube? Um, these are things that can be addressed and brought up and discussed before they have, before they may ever be necessary. Would you risk significant side effects and maybe a decrease in your quality of life? is there in exchange to to get more time, or would you rather optimize how you're feeling now, even if the time you have left might be shorter? These are all really difficult conversations to have with with your doctors and with your family, but the more you discuss them, the more likely you are to live well with treatment tailored to your values and what's most important to you. And with that, I'll turn it back to Dr. Messner, um, and I'm happy to take questions at the end.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Metro. That was an outstanding presentation. Just wonderful and very comprehensive and uh, also a lot of very helpful tips to everybody in terms of the, tech, the, um, the um, telehealth visits and quality of life issues. Very important discussion. So thank you. I'm sure there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Lauren Chitalian. Ms. Chitalian is, a, is the um Women and cancer Children's Program Manager at Cancer Care, and she'll be addressing Cancer Care's free programs and services. And it's really my pleasure to join this program with my esteemed colleague, Ms. Italian.
0: Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include case management, counseling and support groups, educational workshops, virtual community programs, publications, and limited financial assistance. There are many aspects of a HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer diagnosis that may be addressed throughout psychosocial supportive services. Making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, clinical trials, and communication with one's medical team are important topics that can be discussed with an oncology social worker. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. Individuals diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer may choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group. Cancer Care offers national breast cancer support groups online, including our Metastatic Breast Cancer Patient Support Group. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers. Registration can be found on CancerCare's website, cancercare.org. At cancercare.org, there is also a wide array of reading material and information related to metastatic breast cancer. This includes recorded Connect education workshops, publications about speaking to your medical team and coping with one's breast cancer diagnosis, as well as stories of help and hope, the Cancer Care podcast, Cancer Out Loud, and breast cancer resources. People diagnosed with cancer may experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment. Cancer Care's case management services are a short-term, strength-based approach to case management, where the case manager will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you are interested in learning more about the support services we offer, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. We are here to offer you support throughout this experience and look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this very informative program. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Mesner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Chachelian. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful resource for everybody. And so thank you for really identifying all the different services that are available from Cancer Care. And it- Thank you so much, um, all of you, for participating in these questions. It really helps us as we move forward in planning future programs. And now we're going to move on to the question and answer period. I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to invite you to ask as many questions as you wish, uh, Norma.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 one for touch on telephone. If your question has been answered, or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking "Ask a Question."
1: And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, So this is a question um, from one of our online participants um, for Dr. Grana. If one if one with HER2-positive breast cancer is less likely to be sensitive to hormone therapy, should I still try hormone therapy?
2: It depends a little bit on the sites of disease that one is treating. Uh, There is this thought that there's less hormone sensitivity, but there is still hormone sensitivity. Uh, so if someone has lymph node only disease or bone disease or a small volume lung disease, it's a perfectly viable option to try a hormonal drug with a HER2 new targeted therapy. The other approach is oftentimes, once you've used chemotherapy and Herceptin or chemotherapy and Herceptin progetta or chemotherapy and whatever her 2 new targeted therapy, and you've optimized your response, uh, oftentimes one can remove the chemotherapy and leave the hormonal therapy on board with the her 2 new targeted therapy. So I would say yes, uh, it should still be considered. Excellent. Um, and we have a question in one of our online
1: participants then. Um, so um, a question about, this is a, a little bit of a longer question. I'm going to talk to Dr. Um, uh, uh, Lou. Um, I had a lumpectomy in 2019 for stage 2A, ER positive, PR positive, no lymph nodes involved. I was given a K-I score of 67, but my oncologist will not explain what that means. Can you tell me what that score means as far as future risk for breast cancer? Could you address this in a general way? I'm just because it is very
3: specific here. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, KI67, so that's actually the name of the test. So, I don't know that there's what the actual result is, but KI67 is a measure of how quickly the cancer cell is trying to divide. It's called the proliferation rate. Um, and it is one factor of many at the time of an initial diagnosis of breast cancer that gives us a sense of prognosis. So it's it's one you know small feature amongst many that we take into consideration.
1: Excellent. And um, just another question. Um, and this uh, for um, uh, Dr. Uh, um, Horvitz. Um, so how long should I stay on my AI?
4: So that appears to be a question relating to um, the early stage setting, and we're, we're focusing on metastatic breast cancer. In, in metastatic breast cancer where hormone receptor positive, where the tumor co-expresses hormone receptor positive, uh, excuse me, the tumor co-expresses hormone receptors as well as HER2, Um, In general, we continue the anti-hormonal therapy such as an aromatase inhibitor with the HER2-targeted therapy as long as the patient's disease is responding and as long as the patient is tolerating it well, which can in some cases be many, many months or even many, many years. In early stage disease, that's a whole nother can of worms because there's um, a whole lot to discuss there in terms of use of endocrine therapy after surgery in the curative setting in stage one to three disease. So I think that's for another teleconference.
1: Okay, sounds makes sense. <laughs> Thank you. But thanks for addressing it in a general way. Thank you so much. Um, And also um, a question for Dr. Metro, can HER2 status change? I was tested HER2 negative, but can it change to positive?
4: Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And it's not common, but we can see changes in receptor status over time. Um, Typically, this represents something called tumor heterogeneity, which means that tumors themselves not every single cell within a tumor within somebody's breast cancer are exactly the same. And some may be HER2 positive and some may be HER2 negative. And particularly, so if you have a heterogeneous tumor, particularly with the very effective HER2 directed therapies that we have, we can see in some cases where the HER2 positive clone of the cancer gets eradicated, and if you were to repeat a biopsy, the, re, the remaining cancer may be HER2 negative. I would say that's more common for us to see, but it is possible for uh, tumors to gain HER2 expression. Um, for example, if you were not HER2 positive initially and you did not include HER2-directed therapy uh, for a similar, in a similar way, those HER2-positive clones would then um, have, a, have a chance to, to be positive. But, but So it's not common, but it does happen. And it is one of the reasons why we do sometimes consider repeat biopsies, particularly if there's one or two areas of cancer that are not responding the way that the rest of the cancer that we can see is responding.
1: Excellent. Um, and an um, excellent, thank you. And another question, actually, for Dr. Petro. Um, since starting treatment, I had bone pain. What can I do to lessen the pain?
4: So that's—it's difficult to, to to give a definitive answer without knowing the specific medications. There are different reasons for bone pain. Um, we can see bone pain with uh, certain types of chemotherapy, like. Um, like Paclitaxel, we can also see bone pain related to growth factors that, that are given to help stimulate blood cell formation. Um, and then, of course, sometimes bone pain is due to cancer in the bones. So um, there are a variety of medications that we can use. We sometimes use antihistamines like Claritin um, to help with bone pain, um, Tylenol and Motrin or Tylenol and, and ibuprofen can be helpful if your doctor feels that it's safe for you. There are some people who may have um, reasons why those medications would not be safe. Um, and then there are other pain medications in particular um, that can be used. So I would discuss it with your treating doctor. I think um, they're going to be best prepared to give recommendations based on um, what they feel is safe in terms of medications for you, and also what may be the the predominant cause of that bone pain. Thank you so much. And for Ms.
1: Cetallian, a question about the uh, coping circles that cancer care offers. So I wonder if you could say something about those um, national programs that um, are being offered.
0: Sure. Absolutely. So at this time, we do offer coping circles nationally, and those are held virtually via Zoom. Those are psychoeducational workshops. Each workshop may be part of a series or could be a one-off type of workshop, um, depending upon the Um, the audience, and this could be for people diagnosed as well as caregivers. We have, um, they are listed under our community programs on our website as well. So upcoming Coping Circle workshops include our mindful moments for caregivers as well as ways to wellness. And then we additionally have our fostering resiliency one day at a time um, for Spanish-speaking clients and those are, are national, and those, all the information can be found on our website, and you can also call our HOPE line to register for those.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. I want to thank all of our speakers. This has been a, an amazing call, and we could go on for quite a bit more because we have more questions uh, from online participants. However, um, we this is an hour program. I want to thank our speakers um, very much for their Really tremendous information that everyone has provided, really um, state of the art as you all have now, take it back to your healthcare team. so we very much recommend that um, for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who didn't get a, to ask a question, for those of you who still have a question yet to formulate, please take everything back to your healthcare team and you know be sure to ask them um, for um, for their input, I think a number of our speakers have said that we're giving general answers here, but again, take it back to treating healthcare team. And most importantly, as we conclude the program today, we do do not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with metastatic, HER2-positive breast cancer. We want you to know that you're now part of a real community of support. There's lots of services out there for you. You're starting with your healthcare team and all these other services that we've talked about today. So please take advantage of them. And I want to to thank you all for your participation today. And, uh, And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.